0: Hello, and thanks for downloading Hands On, a podcast that accompanies and discusses all the detail, nostalgia, and entirely possible events featuring in the new mini-series created by Peter Stray, Old Habits, The Rise of Hands. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Hans On. I'm Peter Stray. I created old habits, the rise of Hans, as well as playing Hans. In this edition, uh, myself and Mr. Steve Dennis talk about the new characters who've shown up. I say new, they're very familiar to diehard audiences, but um, they're new to Hans. And we also talk to Anthony and Matthew Arkin about uh, their involvement in the series series and also their memories of the 80s, which is uh, a pretty above average because their father is uh, Oscar-winning actor Alan Arkin and they grew up on a variety of movie sets in the 80s. They have, uh, they have some pretty interesting stories. But first, me and Steve talk about sleezoid Harry Ellis and introducing characters in an organic way to Hans earlier than you might think in his timeline. I mean, we're talking millions, maybe even billions. And you've seen this money? Oh, you don't see it. It's all electronic, mostly. Mostly? Well, yeah, I mean, I
1: know they've got all those bearer bonds and this vault two floors above me, but hey.
0: What what I realized was because this character is so, so stupid, um, I I mean, not necessarily stupid, you know, in terms of IQ, in terms of financial intelligence, because clearly he had to get his job at Nakatomi, you know, and, and be a sort of Wall Street semi-Patrick Bateman kind of douche, you know, with, with some level of intelligence. But in terms of actual um, human relations, street smarts, he's a narcissist and possibly a sociopath, you know, mild sociopath, doing doing coke all the time, hitting on ladies, you know, classic 80s stuff. And so I thought this would be the kind of thing where Hans and Tony would bump into him in a Los Angeles nightclub um, <laughs> while they're sort of acclimatising themselves to LA. Um, and then because he's so coked up, you know, he would brag about how he works in this building where there's $640 million in bearer bonds, you know, a couple of floors above him. And so, and then he would wake up the next morning and forget that he'd bragged about this. And so he's, I figured, what if they got the entire idea for the heist from (laughs) Ellis? So that was, that's a sort of, you know, and again, this this is where you can kind of take, liberties with uh, um, storytelling you know especially if you're just sort of doing a satire and you're having some sort of fun with the characters and doing something that's a bit more comic so this is what you got so was was there a danger there I mean like what we talked about earlier but is there a danger there where, where you've got that sort of little overlap of characters from from they they might recognize him or or he would recognize them well do you know what's interesting is you look at the film. This is this is the one area where some people might take take umbrage with this and say, "Oh, I don't know, um, you know." But if you look at the film, there's nothing that. Um, first of, we, we don't spend every waking moment of the film with Hans, So for all we know, there's a moment where he says, "You know, ah, oh, this is that idiot from the nightclub." Um, secondly, by then Tony is the only other person with the nightclub uh, in the nightclub with him because Carl has stayed in his hotel room watching Moonlighting. Um, which is a sort of an in-joke because, you know, Bruce Willis was in Moonlighting, you know. Oh, Moonlighting, um, yeah. So, uh, so, so, so and, and Tony's been killed by that point, so he can't even turn to Tony and say, this is that idiot from the nightclub. You know, he can only just sort of have those thoughts himself. Um, and, and if you look, there's a moment where Hans is walking around sort of reeling off uh, Takagi's resume, you know, while he's looking for him, and he sort of stands face to face with ellis and ellis like is sweating and you know sort of like shakes his head and backs away ellis you know in that moment hans could be thinking i think i recognize you and ellis could be like oh my god is this the guy who i met in the nightclub you know it's the kind of rules where th- it would work with that character but not with, say, Holly McLean. Like, Holly McLean would not have gone to that club. She wouldn't get that drunk. And then she'd, she'd, she yeah. would, she would look at him and say, oh, I remember this guy, you know, and, and then the, the, the events of the film, the, the characters wouldn't have interacted the same way. But I think with Ellis, this is the kind of thing where he absolutely, all the events of the film could have played out the same way if they'd have met him in a club and gotten the idea... But again, this is like this is satire, this is parody, this is a possibility of a fun, you know, laugh idea of as to how Hans could have gotten there. Um, you know, if, if the creators of Die Hard ever wanted to write a prequel, for you know, the chances are it would be more serious than my take on it, and they they would probably go about it a different way. Um, but it's uh, it's certainly fun to do it my way, where you get to go to Swansea and and then meet meet Ellis in a nightclub. Now we're going to go to my interview with the Arkin Brothers, Anthony and Matthew Arkin. Um, they were kind enough to invite me on their podcast and live YouTube show at the Arkin Brothers Talk About Movies. They were also kind enough to slot me in before their review of a 20s film called Rain. And they let me quiz them about their memories of the 80s growing up on movie sets visiting their dad, Alan Arkin, you probably know, is a, an Oscar-winning actor known for Catch-22 back in the day and more recently uh, such films as Argo and Little Miss Sunshine. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Stray. Hello, oh, oh. You guys have multiple roles. This is kind of an ensemble, a wonderful ensemble, international cast where people play more than one role. And um, one of Tony's roles is inspired by the William Atherton character in Die Hard. So it's a fictional podcast, but it's sort of told as if it's a true crime podcast um, created by the William Atherton journalist character from from the original Die Hard and the second Die Hard, Richard Thornburg. So there's a, a clip of that with a, a bank job where he talks about um, tracing Hans, Tony and Carl's first attempt at capitalist robbery.
2: All three men exit, like specters in the Berlin night, carrying three large duffel bags.
1: Wow! You should think about doing that for a living, Tony. <laughs> that, I... was really, that was really good. Don't be crazy.
0: No. Writing, okay. the, um, writing the stuff for the the journalist character played so well by Tony is uh, uh, was some of my favorite stuff to do because you know, as if you remember from the the actual Die Hard movie, Richard Thornburg has some of the most terrible purple prose as a journalist. Oh, he know. was rough
2: on the ears, Um,
0: yeah. You know, you grew up on movie sets, you know, uh, you you would often like be on location with your dad. So I'm just wondering if from the insider's point of view of being on a, an 80s movie set, if there are any particular memories that stuck out to either of you, you know, of, of, of being on a set in the 80s, you know, for something... Uh, that yeah, that really sort of sticks in the memory. I know you guys talked about previously, like, um, being on set with Rutger Hauer. Mm. Um, well,
2: yeah, I mean, sure, there's too many. Didn't to, I mean, there, are, I, w- I was on a lot of sets in the 80s, I was working as you know, I was already working and I was also visiting a lot of people on sets, so I got, I don't know, most impressive 80s scenario. Um. That'll take 80s. me one second. 80s, 80s. I, You know, when you mentioned Rutger Hauer, Escape from Sobibor, we visited, you know, Matthew and I were both on that set, which was a TV film my dad did. Or, our dad did. Uh, and I think that was late 80s. That was like 88 or
1: 9, uh, I think. Yeah, thereabouts. They're 80, 87, I think.
2: And that was an amazing experience. That was an epic, <clears throat> epic TV film with an international cast. Rutger Hauer was in that. Uh, Ju- Ju- uh, Joanna Pakula um, An incredible group of English actors <clears throat> Kurt Robb from, uh, from Germany And but it there was, was a was- World War II It was a World War II era kind of like escape from a prison Camp movie and it was an incredible <clears throat> Production And experience to be around that was amazing Yeah
0: but if I remember correctly, you and you—I you, think you just sort of mentioned this off the cuff in a, a cafe in Brooklyn at some point. One of the most uh, interesting people you met during that stay wasn't actually in the the film, but was having breakfast in the hotel. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That
1: was Mister Oliver Reed. That was a pretty amazing encounter.
2: It was extraordinary. Yeah, that was one of the weirder breakfasts I've ever I've ever had. And it yeah. was uh, it was just Matthew. It was just the two of us. We yeah. were we're having breakfast, weren't we? Going to go to the set, right, and see them shoot something. And we were at the hotel, the Intercontinental, in what was formerly Belgrade. A lot of actors were coming through then because they were shooting films there all the time. And we were just happened to be sitting at a little banquet, only people in the restaurant when they ushered in this very well dressed giant drunk man and sat us sat him next to
0: us. Extraordinary. Um, um, it, did you did you get a sense? I don't know how old you were, but did you get a sense of, oh, I, I I think I think this man is is three sheets, four sheets, five sheets?
2: Oh, I was plenty. We were plenty old enough to know. We were, I, you know, we were both, you know, graduates of schools and adult figures in society by the time we met Oliver Reed oh, and, and, a,
1: and, and drinkers ourselves. Yeah, we had wow. already started
2: drinking. We knew what was up with him, but we also were palpably afraid. <laughs> I think that was, you know, more than noticing he was drunk or, you know, or being awestruck. There there, there was a real sense of danger in the air, uh, for real. Like, you didn't really know how it was going to go. And the fact that it potentially could go towards physical violence was just obvious, completely okay. obvious.
0: So so w- did he impart any drunken wisdom to you or, or talk to you about the industry? Do you remember a- he did impart one bit of
1: was see my memory. I don't remember the breakfast so much as I remember the night before in the bar. Mm-hmm. With the the announcement to the bar before he left, it oh, was the uh, where he got everybody's you remember the quote. He got everybody's attention in the bar before he left. There were sort of two groups of people drinking in the bar. There was the the escape from sobobor cast and crew and there was the cast and crew of whatever movie he was working on in sort of separate areas of the bar restaurant and all of a sudden we hear this man shouting to get everybody's he shouts gets everybody's attention the entire place quiets down he's like everybody everybody we settle down look over at Oliver and he says the hand the heart bananas <laughs> and walked out of the bar. And it's become yeah. a, a catchphrase for our family. <laughs> um, the hand of the heart bananas.
2: It explains a
1: lot. Yeah.
2: It really does.
1: And You don't know what else to say, but you're moved. Yeah. And I remember yeah.
2: He, he told us about at breakfast, he told us about his pet rhinoceros. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He got vaguely hostile, uh, but in a way that was hard to decipher, like to determine whether he was kidding or not. Um, I remember he got slightly anti-Semitic, possibly, but we couldn't quite tell because it was, what was happening was just so strange. Here in
1: the frozen north in the land of the Eskimo. Goodbye, Mr. Davidson.
2: Watching somebody polish off two bottles of champagne for break at breakfast just by themselves was something I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. It, it, he didn't disappoint in any, in any way. Like he was exactly, it was exactly the kind of interaction you'd, ex- you'd kind of expect.
0: That's extraordinary. And I mean, what's amazing is that I think on the in between shoots of, of gladiator, obviously famously died halfway through shooting that. And he actually collapsed in a Spanish bar called the pub. And you know, I just sort of think prophetically. Surely he must have said, "Oh, I'm going to die in the pub one day."
2: John Bonham amounts of vodka or whatever they were serving him. And surely, he yeah. died, right? That's how didn't he die down
0: there? Yeah, he he died. He died during the filming of Gladiator, so they had to sort of re re jig things in editing.
2: Well, of- before we met him, we had nothing to do with this. Um, well, yes. uh,
0: no, but um. Uh, I suppose just just one more question is is given that that was you know it, around about the time when you met him it was around about the time when Die Hard came out. Did, do you have any memories of seeing uh, Die Hard for the first time and what your thoughts were? It, it, is it sort of stuck in your mind in a similar way to you know seeing Raiders for the first time? Um, for me, seeing Die Hard the first time was more the experience of, huh,
1: that guy who used to tend bar at the place I would drink has done pretty
0: well for himself. And that's Bruce Willis. Yeah. Okay, so he was a bartender at your local. Yeah.
2: Um, I was, uh, you know, I was, I wasn't as impressionable when Die Hard came out. I mean, I, I was young, certainly a young man, and 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 appreciated. What was the year that it came out again? Eighty-eight. Yeah, eighty-eight. I mean, we were talking about Raiders. I I was like thirteen when that came out. So that that was very very good timing. I think had I been a little younger, Die Hard might have affected me that heavily. I was already Lethal Weapon was before Die Hard, yeah.
0: I think it was a year before, yeah.
2: So I was already a Lethal Weapon nut. You know, I love that. And Die Hard was to me just yet like another great. Um, sorry, I, I have a cat. Is trying to get my attention. They're fine. They're they're not a, they're not hurt. They're just trying to get my attention. Hey, 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 why don't we cut that out?
0: <laughs> and what was, uh, what was, did you have any impressions of, of, uh, of Rickman as a, you know, because that, that was his first movie. Like Rickman yeah. had done some BBC TV series and some, obviously a yeah. lot from the Royal Shakespeare company, but that was his first movie. Yeah.
2: I, I, I liked him. I thought he was great. I, I didn't, you know, the movie didn't change my life the way it changed your life. Right. I know it changed. It altered your, the course of your life. And for me, I thought it was, it was another really great reason to be alive that, you know, that time of movies, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a movie that I, um, that changed my life. It didn't like, it didn't excite me more than Lethal Weapon. I was already still kind of a Lethal Weapon devotee and not that there's, there's only one, but I think I kind of leaned into that. The team building aspect, the Howard Hawks kind of quality, which we talk a lot about the show, Lethal it. Weapon, as opposed to the lone guy. Um, uh, I like the the team. The, the partner thing a lot. So
0: hmm. both Joel Silver films and both uh great scores by Michael Kamen where we use both fantastic to Christmas
2: movies that that don't actually relate to Christmas in any real normal way.
0: Well now this is this is the the big debate is do you do you you know would you call Die Hard a Christmas movie? Oh uh, I'm totally yeah yeah well, I mean Die Hard is a Christmas yeah. I, read See, a I think movie. Lethal Weapon is a movie that happens to be at Christmas, whereas Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I think I, you're sitting here, but
1: uh, yeah. Why you, Peter? Because uh, I read something
0: on Facebook the other day about why it is a Christmas movie. Well, I mean, Lethal Weapon happens to be at Christmas. There's not a lot of themes in there with Christmas, whereas Die Hard is, has this sort of... Uh, Uh, A man who has done wrong and is then, you know, like he's he's been a dick to his wife. And it's so it's sort of a a journey where he's he's reconciled. And, you know, it's got a a sort of an almost a Scrooge like element to it. His wife is called Holly for a start. Right. Um, You know, the limo driver is called Argyle. And at the end, there are uh, there are uh, papers, you know, sort of fluttering down kind of like snow out of the building, you know. And, right, yeah, and, and this basically. went into a
1: whole thing of comparing it to all of the tropes that are in all of the Hallmark movies, too, and yes. talking about how you you can find every
0: single one of those in, in, in Die Hard. I would like to see a Hallmark movie featuring Hans Gruber, you know, or just international terrorism in general. I think it well. should happen, you know, why not? Why, why not have a, a woman who breaks down in a small town, you know, with a hunky, hunky uh, mechanic guy and she's she has a life in the big city. And then, you know, but then a bunch of international terrorists um, swoop in. I think that's right. I
2: think you could make a case for lethal weapon having similarly. I mean, Holly a good one. I'll give you that. That's good. Uh-huh. Mm. But I think that you know the uh, that it doesn't corner the market on redemption. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, Lethal Weapon is is about redemption
1: much more than Die Hard is. Well, that's because it's a Mel Gibson movie, and Mel Gibson is Jesus Christ in every single movie that he makes.
2: That was my second point. So it has well, a lot, yes, has right. a lot of Christmas vibes.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, 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 and it, it
2: starts with a Christmas song. Does Die Hard? Uh, almost. Almost well, that's not. That's different than yes. Uh,
0: that's true, true. Almost as different than yes. No, it, it no. it's Straight off, Jingle, Jingle Bell Rock. Straight off, straight off the bat, as the credits roll in Lethal Weapon, Christmas in Hollis. Run DMC about ten minutes into it, five minutes into okay. it. So I think close. they're neck
2: and neck. I think it's fascinating that they're both. To, to me, they're both Christmas movies.
0: Interesting. You know,
2: uh, okay. They both are.
0: All right, All right. in, in, in uh, an oblique way. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, you guys are both awesome in the uh, in the podcast. Uh, we, we we featured Tony. We haven't mentioned Matthew, but Matthew plays three different roles. One of the reasons I don't have well, Matthew features briefly in the trailer. Matthew is in uh, episodes which haven't been released yet. So, uh, there's okay. there's two other parts he plays which would be, um, you know, perhaps too big a spoiler. At
2: oh, the well, I... all right. Well, that makes sense. Um, the show you is know, terrific. What... We're, I'm proud to be on it. I can't speak for Matthew, but I'm very happy to be involved. And <laughs> I'm, I'm very I,
1: proud, very proud. But I, I don't remember anything about it. It was, it was such a, it's all a blur to me. So when I, when I get to hear what I, I do,
0: I'll be surprised. Well, it's one of the things with the isolation of of Zoom, and and which is both perhaps a bit odd artistically as actors, where we're working in these bubbles. But it also means that I can pull from this wonderful international array of talent. You know, I've got you guys, I've got friends in the UK, I've got you know an actor from the the Royal the Royal Shakespeare Company. You know, like a, who I grew up with, doing playing Tony. Uh, uh, and then I've got another actor who, uh, you know, did Shakespeare at the Old Globe in San Diego and then was on Broadway playing his brother, Carl. Those two guys have never met, you know, and I taped the, the latter actor in New Zealand, you know, so it's it's and then they all send me these audio files and I put them all together and everybody um, seems to be organically interacting. But it's all the sort of wow. magic of audio drama editing. And then it's been super fun, like um, doing the sound design and, and putting in the explosions and playing with the stereo thing. So it really is, it's a sort of a, basically an audio movie that I'm trying to create. Always looking for an excuse to just sort of crowbar my way into, to Arkinian life. Worst, it's, a, that, it's, a, it's always a pleasure. It's and a, and always a we have pleasure. To crowbar you out. That was me talking to the Arkin brothers. Um, Thanks so much to them for their time. And please do follow along. Uh, and download their podcast, The Arkin Brothers Talk About Movies. It is always a fascinating listen, and they often let me pop in and give my own opinion. Got to give them a shout-out they're They're brilliant. And brilliant as actors, brilliant as friends, and brilliant as podcast hosts. Next week we'll have more 80s trivia, die-hard facts and chats with the cast. And don't forget to download the next episode of Old Habits, The Rise of Hans, this coming Monday. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rise of Hans. Or Hans. It's spelt the same way.